From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, Community Solar Becomes Big Business, Are Companies Rethinking CDP? A talk with the new CSO at the White House, Michael Bloomberg's new climate group, and what to expect next week at GreenBiz 16. By the time we get to Phoenix, this week on 350. It's February 19th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. I'm here as always with Green Biz Senior Editor Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. Uh, some breaking news. Happy birthday, Joel. <laughs> yeah, today's the day. I am officially a Beatles song. <laughs> and we don't know which no, one. No, it could be anyone. <laughs> Maybe it's Sexy Sadie. I don't know what oh, it is. Oh, um, exotic. But it's a, it's a, aside from that little uh, detail, it's been a crazy week here as we get ready for the big show next week, Green yeah. Biz 16, uh, starting uh, Tuesday in... Scottsdale, Arizona, where it's right now, uh, um, let me look, um, 87 degrees Fahrenheit and will be like that all week long. So that should be fun for our friends from the Northeast, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to some sun and also a pretty crazy lineup of speakers. Like I know Ellen MacArthur will be there, sort of the circular economy guru. I'm doing a couple of sessions on forests and recycling. And you're also going to be hosting a Sidebar. Yeah, so Sidebar is part of the virtual event we do. It's free. You can find out more about it by going to greenbiz.com and clicking on the events tab at the top of the page. We'll be live streaming all of the main stage speakers. So that's people like Ellen MacArthur and lots of other big figures that we talk about. Um, But sidebar, then we take the questions and feedback that we get from our online audience and ask that in real time to the people who are on the stage. So it's a cool way to participate if you can't be in Phoenix in person. Yeah, just before we rolled tape, I was looking. I didn't realize this. We have 178 speakers booked for next week. That's all. (laughs) Have your head spinning. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. And um, I've got um, 13, count them, 13 uh, main stage interviews that I'll be doing uh, with uh, a great lineup of people, Aaron Kramer from BSR, Paul Hawken, Ellen MacArthur, uh, Neil Hawkins from Dow, um, uh, Jim Keene, the CEO of Steelcase, and a bunch of others. It's just, it's going to be a great few days. Mm -hmm. I'm also curious, though, in terms of what you see as the interesting ways the event has evolved over the years, like maybe not necessarily the number of speakers or anything, but the topics that are covered and what people are really interested in. Well, part of it's also just the format. Uh, Three. uh, This is our eighth year now of doing this event. And this is the third year that we've been doing it in in Scottsdale, partnering with Arizona State University's uh, Global Institute on Sustainability and the Sustainability Consortium coming together. Our event is in the middle of a sustainability solutions festival that ASU puts on. So we're we're part of something bigger. And we also, when we did that three years ago, we also moved, uh, we had been doing multiple events. We had three three versions of this this show. We do it three events on, on, on three consecutive weeks in northern climates in January and February, <laughs> what we now think of as the What Were We Thinking Tour. 
So we go, you know, San Francisco, Minneapolis, uh, New York, or San Francisco, Chicago to D.C. Anyway, we now have everyone come to a warm place, destination place at this great uh, Marriott Resort. So that's part of it. I mean, it's not just the, uh, you know, the fact that it's warm in one place. It's it's actually a community coming together. And, and this really is, has become in some ways the preeminent event for a gathering of, of the tribe, the tribe being sustainability executives from mostly large companies coming together, you know, six or 700 of them. I think we'll have about 700 this year coming together to really share what they know and talk about the tools and trends and techniques they need to be successful. And as we always do on GreenBiz, whether it's an editorial or events or anything else, we try to be, uh, you know, at sort of the advanced level, not the 101 or 102, but maybe the 201 level. We're getting into some of the some of the, the more sophisticated topics that uh, that companies are, are, are dealing with uh, this year or in, every, in a year. Well, that's one of the things that I think is different this year, right, in terms of how the event is structured. There's sort of these tracks, not to say it's like a rigid divide or anything, but there is a focus around some core areas. This is the first year we've done tracks. And we also, because of that and because of some of the sponsor interest in in, in the tracks, in, in some specific tracks, we're taking on some new topics like purpose and leadership. Uh, PwC came in and said, we want that, that that's an interest to us. We'd love to sponsor a track on that. And so we're going to have a number of sessions throughout both main stage and, work, and breakouts looking at this whole sense of purpose of, of that's more and more com- big companies are talking about. What are, what's our purpose? Why are we in business? Uh, what's you know what are we trying to do here beyond you know make money and you know and and what does a leader need to be in in this sort of new environment uh, and so that that's interesting uh, in addition to you know the usual topics of you know how do we scale up corporate procurement of renewable energy or you know how do we you know think about uh, the circular economy we'll have a lot of sessions on the circular economy this year so um, it just keeps getting better. Mm-hmm. And I know we're going to hear in a minute from one of the speakers I'm excited to hear from next week, the new chief sustainability officer of the White House. But before we get to that, let's take a look at the week in review. So we kicked off the week with a great story from senior writer Barbara Grady that ran under the headline, WWF's New Markets Institute Sets the Table to Feed $9 billion. Barbara is here with us in the studio, and can you give us a quick rundown of what this institute is? Sure, Lauren. So the World Wildlife Fund created the Markets Institute to Advance Sustainable Food Production, the idea being the problem of how to grow enough food sustainably for 9 billion people where the planet will be in roughly 20 years or so, is really big. And we're not going to get there without some kind of coordinated action and without market-based solutions. What they're trying to do is provide a platform that people in the industry, companies in the industry can use these approaches but do it jointly. So use kind of investment banking type approaches and uh, financing and working directly with 
large numbers of farmers to get them to change things, but not put each other at a competitive disadvantage. So what companies are involved so far? So we have uh, Mars, Kellogg, Unilever. Some familiar characters. Yeah, ones that have been out there on the sustainability front. Yeah, I love this initiative. This has been part of a quest that WWF has been on for a number of years. I know you talked to Jason Clay to do this story, and I've known Jason a a long, long time. And he did, I think this is part of something he talked about way back in 2010 when he did a TED Talk called How Big Brands Can Save Biodiversity. And what it was about was looking at, um, first of all, talking about, uh, I think, eight or nine uh, key commodities that they've been looking at, uh, beef, cocoa, coffee, uh, soy, salmon, a number of others, but also at, um, you know, a hundred companies that if they could move in this direction, could transform uh, food and agriculture in the ways that you're talking about, that we can feed 9 billion people, mm-hmm. not mess up the planet, uh, you know, this whole food, energy, water nexus we've mm-hmm. all been talking about for a long time. And, um, you know, the good news, and, and, and Lauren jumped on this a little bit, you know, some of these are companies that we've been writing about a bunch who have been on, you know, seem to be on the case, uh, Unilever, uh, uh, Nestle, uh, Tyson, um but by doing it together, none of them have to go out on a limb, you know, so to speak. Well, it's not just a limb. I mean, part of it is that as big as these guys are, uh, they're just not big enough to move, to move some of these markets. And I was struck, uh, WWF also worked with McDonald's, but, you know, did this uh, uh, series of pieces uh, two years ago, and two Jan- Januarys ago, about McDonald's quest for sustainable beef. And one of the things I learned in that is that as big as McDonald's is around the, the world, they typically, in a, and they're in almost every country, they typically source between 1% and 2% of all the beef. And so McDonald's can say, we want wow. sustainable beef, but they don't, they're not that big. And, and uh, the same thing with, with, with potatoes. I remember when they tried to um, uh, say we didn't want any GMO potatoes for our fries. They just didn't buy enough damn potatoes to move the market <laughs> as big as you can imagine yeah. they are. And so that's, that's one of the reasons they have to uh, band together. And I think this is what we see across a, a number of initiatives, not just in food and ag, is that companies say we, we really need to, you know, competitive though we, we, we may be, we need to work together. Right. The other thing, too, is that commodities trading has grown so much that that is the main way of procuring these things, these basic foodstuffs. And that really removes the manufacturers from the farmers. So there's all these middle layers and so this initiative is to help get through all that. Yeah, so that really gets to the heart of some of these supply chain transparency and traceability issues that we hear a lot about. Um, thank you very much, Barbara. Interesting You're welcome. Stuff. We'll continue to follow that story. But also this week, we took a close look at the state of climate disclosure. Reporter Keith Larson took a deep dive this week into a new effort by the Financial Stability Board. It's a task force that is chaired by a familiar character, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Um, And as Keith pointed out, this announcement in some respects might seem like deja vu. Uh, Back in May of 2014, Bloomberg was appointed the chair of another sustainability-focused finance board, that one, uh, the Board of Directors for the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, also known as SASB. So Joel, I think it really gets to this issue of sort of um, how do you move the needle on disclosure? We hear over and over, we need to know more about how much companies are emitting and whether they see climate as a real risk. Yeah, the holy grail of all this is to get 
companies to disclose uh, climate uh, risks in their 10Ks, uh, in their in their quarterly reports that they're required to file with the SEC it, for, for U.S. companies. There's equivalent uh, outside the United States. The issue is that that there are the companies say they're doing that, but it's just this boilerplate stuff that says says nothing really about uh, it's just sort of boilerplate, and so doesn't get specific about you know we're we're sourcing our goods in in these uh, you know seventeen countries and thirteen of them are water stressed or you know or, or at risk for flood in the court, in the case of uh, heavy rains or a hurricane you know those kinds of things that could disrupt supply chains that investors really need to know about you know what are the risks in a world where where weather and climate are are changing and there's more severe uh, dis- disruptions so this is what we're trying to get and, and and of course it's not just SASB and this new task force that uh, Bloomberg's now uh, going to be chairing at the Financial Stability Board. There's GRI, there's CDP, there's all sorts of other efforts. Series has been on the case for, for a decade. So Lauren, what do you think is different this time? So Keith explains that while SASB and others look at a range of sustainability issues, so you've got water and some of these other sort of supply chain risks, uh, this new task force is going to be focused explicitly on climate-related risks in financial filings, and it is not a standard-setting organization. That's still broad, but it does sort of hint that maybe they are trying to really drill down into this issue of the SEC filings. Um, But that also does raise an issue, which is how do you enforce that? Um, a New York Times article mentioned that the SEC issued 49 comment letters to companies uh, regarding the adequacy of their climate disclosures in 2010 and 2011. But even as the conversation around climate change has ramped up in the last couple of years, they only issued three of those letters in 2012 and zero in 2013. <laughs> so. yeah. Well, we need less government, as, as we've been hearing all this uh, campaign season, right? <laughs> there's, yeah. there's your case in point. <laughs> Well, well, I think all of this, you know, gets us to two other stories we ran this week that, that really point to the fact that it's not going to be a very good year, 2016, for uh, legacy energy companies. Um, coal is is dying. It's you know, uh, and to that end, our our friend uh, and editor at large, David Crane, uh, uh, did a piece this week called "King Coal and the Irony of the Endgame," where he. He talks about, uh, you know, sort of the fact, first of all, that coal, the demise of coal that seems to be taking place where so many companies are going out of business and the uh, the value of some companies has dropped by like 95%, the, the market cap, that the that this is not being driven by, as he calls it, the, the granola eating tree hugger movement. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the six shooter toting climate change disbelieving Texas oil men and their big and successful play on fracking that's really uh, been the, the demise of coal. And the second irony is that uh, if it's going to be saved, that it, it's not going to be the mining companies or the current coal plant owners of which David was formerly the CEO of a company that had a number of those holdings that saves the technology, but rather the, the, the clean energy entrepreneurs who figure out how do you get the carbon out of coal and is that even possible and, and then turn the carbon and coal from an environmental liability into an economic asset. I don't know exactly what David has in mind there because that seems like a pretty big leap of faith to do that. But, you know, this is... Uh, this is the level of thinking that needs to happen. 
Mm-hmm. It also does raise the issue, though, around sort of other risks that are sort of simmering beneath the surface that we don't think about every day. And I think one big example of that is the leaking storage facility at Porter Ranch in Southern California, which has released about 90,000 tons of natural gas, obviously methane, uh, really intense greenhouse gas pollutant into the air. Um, so it's sickened residents, forced evacuations, and it's also wiped out quite a bit of the progress that has been made in terms of drawing down greenhouse gas emissions in California and elsewhere. Um, so this week we had Joanna Underwood, who's the chair of the board at Energy Vision, uh, write a piece, and she kind of calls out the fact that methane is sort of one of these things that flies under the radar of legislation, and like at the Paris Climate Talks, obviously it was much more about carbon, um, but there are some of these other things that need to be addressed before we get a Ahead of ourselves thinking about the future of energy. Yeah, well, the good thing about the Porter Ranch leak is that it has brought to light um, the fact that there are, there are hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of leaking wells, not just in California, but around the United States and around the world that uh, are, as you said, under the radar, just slowly leaking this uh, this very potent greenhouse gas. Uh, methane is a 20, has 25 times the greenhouse or global warming potential uh, of carbon dioxide. Uh, so a little goes a long way. Uh, this is uh, now uh, in the, the, the Klieg light, the spotlight of, of attention. And I think we're going to start to see, you know, and ask the companies, you know, you've got to be, you know, a little leaks no longer are, 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 are worth it. No Little leaks are no longer going to go unreported. Uh, what are you doing about it? Are you detecting them? How much? And are you keeping track? And what are you doing about it? That's going to be a whole new uh, level of scrutiny that's put on this industry. Mm -hmm. And in terms of making better use of some of these resources that are involved in energy production, um, Joanna's column does mention the possibility of capturing biogas from organic waste, maybe processing and then turning that into energy to be used in vehicles, which obviously waste to energy is a whole other issue. gets into the shades of green and the sort of solutions that you find to some of these issues. Yeah, and I think that ties together again with, with David Crane's piece on, on coal, which is that there's so much innovation that can be done with these legacy energy sources like like coal and natural gas, I mean maybe with coal, uh, definitely with natural gas, in terms of how it's being uh, mined and, and sourced and and burned and and ultimately emitted, that you can uh, you know capture the emissions, you can come up with new new ways of dealing this with this while we're building the the clean energy, the renewable uh, energy economy. So uh, you know clearly what's what's I think the good news here is that. Um, we're starting to really understand that and see the problems of what happens when we don't pay attention. Uh, the bad news, or maybe it's the good news, is that there's still a lot of work needs to be done. One of the stories we ran this week, it's also a preview of uh, next week's Green Biz 16, is a profile of the new chief sustainability officer at the White House, Christine Harada. And it was done by none other than our reporter and Green Biz 350 producer, Soraya Malconian. So slide over to the microphone, Soraya, and uh, <laughs> away from the controls and let's talk about this piece. Soraya, what's yeah. 
the White House CSO do? CSO position. She basically has the same position as you would in a company of um, monitoring environmental impacts and setting sustainability goals for any organization, but she does it for the entire federal government's operations. Um, (laughs) Just a small job. Right, right. Um, So by the numbers, that's the sustainability of 360,000 buildings, um, a fleet of 650,000 vehicles, um, 445 billion annually in purchased goods, um, and it affects 4.2 million full-time employees. So. Uh, that's a lot of light bulbs <laughs> to switch out. That's uh, no small potatoes. But uh, I think this is what's interesting. One of the things that's interesting about this, uh, she's the second. Uh, right. uh, uh, the, the, uh, the previous one was Kate Brandt, who I know uh, you've written about. Uh, Lauren uh, went from White House to the to to Google, where she's the CSO there. But uh, this is the whole thing is kind of an upgrade uh, for the federal government because for the past. Uh, maybe 15 years or so. Uh, I think probably going back to the end of, of the Clinton administration even, there was a federal, so 20 plus years, there there was a federal environmental executive. And this is uh, someone who was primarily involved with procurement or making sure that the, there's some executive orders that came during the Clinton years about ordering the government to green up its procurement around paper and some other things. And this uh, person was then uh, overseeing that. But it's really interesting that this uh, has now moved to the White House. So does she report to the president? What does she sort of fit into the hierarchy here? Yeah, so she's the basically the head of the Council on Environmental Quality, which advises the president. Um, and she, I mean, it's such a big operation. It's the entire federal government, government's operation. So that deals with from EPA's office supplies to NASA satellites to the DOD's missiles. And I asked her about that. Like, how do you manage that? Um, and she pinpointed um, data as really important considering how large and widespread the operations are. So let's see what she had to say. So I think the White House plays a very critical role and ensuring how the federal government uh, both expands and updates our federal environmental performance goals. I mean, largely with a focus and an objective to reduce greenhouse gas emissions across our federal operations and the federal supply chain. And to that end, for example, you know, we're placing priority first on reducing energy use and cost, then on finding renewable or alternative energy solutions. You know, we're also pursuing clean sources of energy to improve energy and water security, while ensuring that federal facilities will continue to meet their mission requirements and lead by example. So I'm a self-described data geek. I love data. Um, I think that there's a lot of, so when I was back at GSA, I stood up a, a data analytics team. You know, we actually sit on, the government sits on a ton of great data. And what I found was that, you know, we just weren't either A, leveraging the data in the correct manner, B, asking the right questions about the data, and then therefore, C, we weren't really providing very good value-added services, if you will, to our customer agencies, at least back when I was at GSA. So one of the things that you know is certainly on top of my mind here in my role right now is in thinking through how do we make sure that we're collecting the right data across this vast enterprise we call the federal government, 4.2 million FTE with operations all around the globe. How do we make sure that we're actually collecting the right kind of data in a clean way that doesn't super tax the collection process itself, if you will, right? Because I don't want to kill the staff just to collect the data and trying to figure out how do we use it in order to be able to, again, maintain you know, our leadership in energy, environmental water, fleet buildings, and acquisitions management and things of that nature. 
One thing I'm curious about, though, the federal government is not known for being a particularly flat organization. Um, So you mentioned that she reports to President Obama, quite a boss to have. Um, But does she have to deal with Congress or how is sort of all of this measured and tracked and accounted for? Her council, the Council on Environmental Quality, deals with kind of the strategy and overall direction of uh, the federal government's sustainability. They don't deal with actual procurement for agencies. You know, she's not involved when they, you know, buy the vehicles for a certain agency or even they're not, she's not there when facilitating a particular renewable energy purchasing contract um, for an agency. So she's very broad level um, kind of principles and policies level. And this is partly because, you know, she's part of the White House. 99% of people who work at the White House are political appointments. um, And with every change of the administration comes a different set of agendas and priorities. And um, at that level, you don't want to have any undue influence on what the agencies are um, doing. So in her position, she advises the president um, and uh, they help craft what may become executive orders. So, for example, Kate Brandt, who was her predecessor, um, she spearheaded um, what became Executive Order 13693, which is kind of government speak, but it basically set the internal kind of green principles and sustainable buying preferences. Um, so they can't say you have to do this. They kind of set the strategy. Did you ask her about that process of sort of setting the strategy and then seeing it through? She actually gave an example of the government's fleet, so I'll let her explain that. Uh, The president has called out to the federal agencies and mandated that we shall reduce greenhouse gas per mile uh, across the entire fleet, you know, by 25% by the year 2025. And additionally, we're looking at recrafting or... um, uh, Redesigning the nature of the fleet, if you will, such that, you know, the the fleet has 30% either zero emission vehicles or plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, you know, also by the year 2025. And so we're currently in the process right now of working with agencies on developing those plans. So did engagement with the private sector come up in any of this conversation? Yeah, um, I asked her about that, and she talked about how much you know, she wants the private sector to understand the workings of her council and the government, but she also said that she'd like to learn from uh, the private sector. So it's the policy of certainly the Obama administration to ensure that we are doing everything that we can to, you know, maintain our leadership in sustainability and greenhouse gas reductions. Um, Mm -hmm. And to that effect, you know, we are, we're certainly open to listening to ideas Um, and innovations, if you will, innovative models from various businesses. It's a great learning for us, candidly. There's a lot of good stuff that we're doing in federal government. So, for example, you know, we've issued a number of challenges to federal agencies on increasing on-site renewable energy generation. Uh, But DOD, for example, is on target to generate three gigawatts of power using largely solar. And uh, we're also on track to... Uh, awarding on the order of $4 billion of performance contracts, leveraging innovative financial mechanisms from the private sector that enable us to remove about a million tons of carbon dioxide emitted annually just from this effort alone. 
this whole collaboration thing we hear about is that just vaporware or are they actually looking for like partners or models that they could potentially pull from the private sector and replicate right she wasn't specific um about any future plans um but she will be at green to 16 and she said she's very excited to you know have those conversations with people with other cso's one to see what they're working on and two maybe uh she wasn't specific out of it, maybe to collaborate. Yeah, I think that's going to be part of the conversation. I know she and I talked uh, last week and going to talk a little bit about what's going on at DOD because that's sort of a really interesting exercise of how do you transform a big agency while keeping the mission critical functions that need to take place there, but also how can the private sector help? So we'll be talking about that next week in Phoenix. So, Saria Melconian, thanks so much. Thanks. So I want to welcome back to the program John Davies, our Vice President and Senior Analyst here at GreenViz Group. I welcome John. Nice to be here, Joel. <laughs> John, uh, of course, is, among other things, uh, runs the GreenBiz Executive Network, which is the membership-based peer-to-peer learning forum we have for sustainability execs. Basically, we bring together uh, big company sustainability professionals in small groups several times a year. And we have uh, those meetings in January, May, and September. So the January meetings uh, finished a week or so ago. And now that they're done, I thought we'd bring you back, John, to sort of talk about what happened. Give us, first of all, just sort of the the big picture. We had meetings where, you know, who hosted? We had three meetings. We had one in Orlando hosted by Disney at Walt Disney World, Uh, you know, happiest Place happiest GPEN meeting on earth, and uh, we <laughs> we had another one uh, here in San Francisco at PG and E um, at their Energy Innovation Center. That's a really great space down downtown San Francisco. And then our most recent meeting was at the Waste Management Phoenix Open. Uh, actually at the 18th hole of the Phoenix Open. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. And each of these meetings, we not only have uh, uh, the group meet, which is basically from lunch one day through lunch the next day with an evening dinner thrown in in the middle, but also we get to do some tours. We've already gushed about our Cape Canaveral trip when we were in Orlando and, and so on. And and we uh, when we were in San Francisco, we went to uh, Autodesk's Pier 9 and looked at all their additive manufacturing work. I'm sure that's there'll be many episodes we cover things like that. Yeah, and sort then of. Uh, at, at, in Phoenix, uh, walked around and saw how you do a zero-waste large event like the Phoenix Open, which I think is the, one of the biggest sporting events in the world. Yeah. So uh, lots of fun. But in the middle of all that is is, is great conversation where, where companies uh, are you know sharing information and it's a Chatham House rule, which means you can't name the companies. We can talk about what happened there. But John, give us a, a flavor for some of the, the themes or some of what, what happened this time around. Well, one of the things, and, and we're very member-led, and so we get a lot of our ideas as to what to talk about from our members. And a lot of times they walk out of the meeting saying, oh, this has been 
really helpful for me to get things off of my chest and talk about all the challenges that come up. And so one of our members said, hey, can we do one meeting where we just talk about some successes that we've had? And so we went around the room at each of these meetings and asked people to share their stories of one really good success. So we have about 20 companies at each meeting and we go around. And, and one of the great things about your facilitation style, John, is that you know some people want to talk about it for three minutes, some want to talk about it for 20 minutes, and you sort of let it happen. And it's really great because, the, as you said, the members really lead it, and it, 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 the conversation goes on pretty much as long as it wants to. Yeah, there's a lot of great interaction, and there, there were some interesting uh, stories that came out of our ideas, and I think people walk away with a notebook full of ideas that they've written down, learning from each other. Um, one of the ones that I thought was sort of interesting is companies are moving around a lot. You know, they move people from building to building. These are large companies that we're dealing with. And one company talked about the fact that they had created what they called zero waste zones, where when you're moving from your office or cubicle to another building or another area, and there are things you're not going to take with you, like a monitor or post-it notes or pens and tablets, that there's an area where you can leave it and it sort of becomes a marketplace for other people who need things. So reducing what they had to order, reducing what gets sent to waste, it was a great idea. Yeah. Uh, what about another one? Um, I think another one was around tracking waste during construction. A lot of these companies, they build lead gold, lead platinum buildings and, and facilities, but there really isn't a standard for tracking the uh construction waste and what happens during that build. And so one of our members talked about how they were implementing a program to track all of the construction waste. So uh, there's also, this is the good ideas. Were there other ideas that we talk about failures or frustrations? What else? Well, the, we always talk about frustrations and occasionally because we're in, under Chatham House rule, people are open enough to talk about failures. I think one of the big frustrations that we heard about, and it started, we, we get emails from members and we anonymize questions from them, send them out to the membership and then collect the feedback and publish it out to the network members. And we got a question a few weeks ago, uh, right before our meeting started about um, CDPs adding a new fee to participate. And so one of our members was curious about whether that was a good thing, whether anyone was going to leave CDP and stop reporting. And it doesn't appear that anyone's going to stop reporting, but there were several who just weren't happy with this idea of a fee. Yeah. And that's a lot of the things that people do with the Green Biz Executive Network is just compare notes yeah, because they're all you know as different as these companies. And it's a really you know, interesting group uh, that range from consumer products companies like Clorox uh, or things that we know every day like Facebook and Google or uh, financial services like Wells Fargo to media companies like 21st Century Fox, uh, retail Sephora, Target, uh, Kohl's department stores. And, you know, uh, yeah, just it's and, and I think that the range of, of, of companies in the room really brings this great conversation. And then just one last thing we, we can wrap up on I thought was really fascinating is that uh, a number of our members talked about, we asked about COP21 and what the impact of that was. And what really came out of it was the impact of the letter to the White, you know, the commitments to the White House 
that really led up to COP21. And Joel, you were there for a lot of those uh, conversations. And I think you were kind of surprised that that was a bigger impetus for these companies than than the actual COP. Yeah. So in the run up to COP21, they uh, the White House uh, announced uh, in a couple different tranches, first a group of, I think, 10 or so companies that had made some commitments and and then a group of maybe 30 more or 40 more companies. I think may have even been like 60 or 70 all told. Uh, and and the, obviously the message here was that big business is behind uh, the government. American companies are behind us. And we want to, they're asking for action and they're doing some things themselves. But beyond the political moment, what was interesting is how many companies said that really helped my CEO, my management team, executive team, get their attention about climate change and take it seriously. Right. And I think it may have gone over 200 by the end of it. And just they're looking. So I think now and what we'll see when we get together in our meetings in May is, so what's the next step? How do we keep our senior leadership engaged? Yeah. And to be true, one of the some of the things that, that companies acknowledged was that what they announced and committed to uh, under the White House uh, wasn't always new stuff. Uh, some of it was there was some new stuff to be added, but some of this was just a uh, summary of things they've already been doing. But uh, I and, and so it's always when the political theater, you know, this is what, what happens. But what the, one of the conversations we had is what's the next White House announcement? The, not I mean, literally, but what's the next catalyst like a White House announcement that's going to get management, as you said, paying attention? So we uh, the next meetings are when are they? They're coming up in May. And, uh, you know, stay tuned. We'll yeah. come back and talk about what we talked about then. That's great. We look forward to seeing you in early June, John. Thanks. Uh, it's John Davies. GreenBiz Vice President and Senior Analyst talking about the GreenBiz Executive Network. Thanks, Joel. So, Lauren, you had a really interesting piece this week on something called community solar. It seems to be this this new middle ground between rooftop solar and the utility scale solar. What's going on here? It's interesting because this first sort of came about uh, in the environmental justice community as a way for um, communities, especially low income or communities of color that are disproportionately impacted by the public health effects like asthma rates or the high financial burden of energy bills to sort of assert uh, local ownership and also really sort of clean up the community by bringing in renewable power. Uh, But now utilities and renewable energy developers are also seizing on community solar as sort of a mid-size opportunity to deploy renewables while also keeping some of the power customers they've had for a long time. So for them, in some ways, it's like a little bit of a win-win. Like you get to bring in the renewable energy that will help them meet their state targets for um, for clean energy in states that you have that, um, but they'll also uh, keep their business models going. So this is a, a solar installation that's not necessarily on a rooftop. Um, help me understand this, that, that, that a number of different families are building buildings get to all tap into so what give us a little bit of the the construct of the how many how big are these things and how uh, many buildings do they tend to serve that's the key question so when you've got a big player like first solar jumping in they're saying like why don't we look at building a 10 or 20 megawatt regional facility that could serve sort of like a a large neighborhood or mid-sized neighborhood 
Um, and maybe that facility won't be a mile away, but it won't be out in the desert, like some massive solar project that you see in a place like Nevada or something like that. But on the flip side, the people that are more interested in this for the community justice element say, no, this is really about building small scale distributed energy. Like maybe it's uh, in a church parking lot or on a vacant space, industrialized space is something people are curious about revitalizing. Um, but that's really the main question. What is community solar? Yeah, and it's going to spin off a whole new breed of entrepreneur. Uh, you didn't write about this, but I, I just had a conversation with Bill Gross, the CEO of Idea Lab down in Pasadena. They've spun off a whole bunch of companies in, uh, in a whole range of technologies. He's got a company called Edison, that's E-D-I-S-U-N, yeah, Edison, uh, which is making a small modular concentrated or small mo modular uh, photovoltaic plants that you can put in neighborhoods. Uh, it uses hot air and rock storage, so it has a 24-7 capacity. He's got one, uh, uh, he said they're so low profile that they have one in Pasadena that's right in a residential neighborhood. It's 100 kilowatts, which is the equivalent of really a 500 kilowatt of PV because you talk about 100 kilowatts running for 24 hours. And um, uh, there's no bird problems. There's no cranes or productions. And so this is exactly the kind of thing I think we'll be seeing more of. Yeah. but So the, the other key sticking point here is who gets sort of the revenue from that? Like, because there's these policies around like virtual net metering or sort of divvying up energy costs and who gets the billing. Um, do, does Edison have that model that you're aware of? I don't know that where they where they insinuate themselves, but this is an issue that I mean, some of the critics of community solar have talked about. This is uh, utilities ploy to get into the revenue stream of of, of photovoltaics of PV solar. That um, you know, if you put it on your rooftop, they're 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 cut out of the loop. But if you have a little community group, then it's on the outside of the meter, so that all of a sudden the utility can take the ownership of that or control the, the revenue flows and become part of the value proposition of that, which they're not if it's just on your roof. Yeah, I actually talked to Amit Ronan, who is a professor of public policy at George Washington University, my alma mater, and head of the GW Solar Institute. He explained sort of what market the community solar could ultimately serve and why it actually could be less threatening for incumbent energy providers than you might expect. Obviously, the opportunity is that there's a huge amount of people who can't uh, go solar in kind of your traditional vision of what solar is uh, when you're talking about distributed rooftop solar because they don't have a house or it's not facing, roof's not facing the right way or it's shaded or there's some neighborhood concern about it or what have you, that it's a way to uh, enable them to either get owner, you know, obviously there's lots of different models on community solar, shared solar, even the terms are used differently, uh, but to get a piece of what they, the solar future that and the and the opportunities and benefits associated, whether that be some people it's important for environmental reasons, it's a, can be often a lower cost resource. Municipalities are interested in community solar as a way to meet their solar goals. Utilities are also interested in community solar. There's been a few pilot projects over the last couple of years, but they see it maybe as a more comfortable space that they can get, be engaged in solar. Um, at the distribu distribution level, they're much more comfortable at the utility scale level. That's well established, but uh, that they can own these assets themselves, uh, still be supply their customers and leverage that 
relationship that they have with them, uh, but it's based on a solar solar generation source. When you start getting into models where it's behind the meter, then it gets a lot messier from, from their perspective. That boils down to a lot of the times kind of this fight between utility-scale solar and distributed solar, and some people clearly advocate for one over over the other for a lot of reasons we don't need to you probably know but you know i see it as both both are good for the larger populace and what we're trying to accomplish on a lot of levels in terms of uh, greening our energy system making it more diverse lowering uh, electricity costs that they both have an important role to play so as Amit alluded to, sort of the key distinction here is how far community solar deviates from the centralized grid model that we've had, or if you push more aggressively into distributed solar. One interesting development I uncovered in reporting this story is that community solar actually very recently got its first lobbying group to sort of focus on how companies that are more associated with the grid um, or on the in the camp of renewable energy developers are talking to states who are looking at implementing community solar as part of their plans to cut emissions or comply with things like the clean power plan. Um, I talked to Aaron Marr, who's the senior director of utilities for renewable energy at First Solar, and he shared sort of how his company is thinking about working with other developers and utilities to make this model work. What we think is going to happen here in the coming years is whether uh, whether through utility initiatives or whether through uh, uh, you know regulatory initiatives, uh, these solar programs these they will grow. Uh, the the individual assets will grow in size. Uh, the the uh, aggregated assets will grow and that's that's our area of expertise we are uh, you know uh, amongst uh, the the leading developers of large-scale utility assets um, we're capable of, of bringing some great efficiency into these programs and it's our opinion that if we can drive costs out of the out of the deployed asset we offer these programs the opportunity to scale even more quickly um, we think these programs uh, you've heard our, our executive leadership speak often about the fact that uh, that our, it's our desire to see uh, solar deployed uh, cost effectively. That comes through scale. I mean, if you if you if you take a step back and you ask yourself, you know, what are the tools in the toolbox today for a state or utility to meet their uh, what I'll call their their climate related objectives, um, whether that's the state portfolio standard or you know, clean power plan or or some even broader initiative. I would tell you that today, um, you know, there's a very binary look at the market. It's either a utility scale asset um, or it's a, you know, distributed rooftop asset typically behind a customer meter and and all of the challenges that come with that space. How far can it be from a customer? Uh, uh, you know, how, how what, what does the engagement have to accomplish for the customer, the utility and, 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 and the developer in order for there to be a, a you know, a win-win-win, which is really how how programs can ultimately scale, right? All right, so obviously we've got 100 years of laws and regulations that are geared toward the grid to contend with when it comes to community solar and a lot of other innovative clean energy approaches, but we'll continue to follow this story. (laughs) 
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can find the links to the organization stories and events we mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to Saria Malconian, our producer. Uh, by the way, you can subscribe to Green Biz 350 through things like iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. So check those out, and you'll always find it every Friday morning on greenbiz.com and through our daily email newsletter, Green Buzz. We'll be podcasting next week from Green Biz 16 in Scottsdale, Arizona, including excerpts from some of the interviews and stage presentations and some of the other things that took place under the hot desert sun. As Lauren said earlier, you can watch the main stage action via the, lo- the free live stream. You just go to greenbiz.com and click on the events tab. As always, send us your feedback, ideas, and comments to 350 at greenbiz.com. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.